Believe it or not, there was a time when Spider-Man wasn't a box office sensation or the video game icon that we know and love today. There was a time when he was just a twinkle in Stan Lee's eye, a time when video games were still just trying to figure out how to make a pixelated character climb a wall. Today, we're going to head back, we'll be deep diving into these early days of Spider-Man and tracing his webbed footsteps from the comic book pages to the pixelated buildings of the very first Spider-Man game and beyond. So join us as we leap off the tallest skyscraper and dive headfirst into Spider-Man's story on yet another trip down memory card lane. Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. I hope these words find you well. Hello and welcome to the 176th episode of our Video Game History Podcast, A Trip Down Memory Card Lane. Each week, we'll tell you a story relevant to the current week in gaming history. It can be about a game or the people that create them. It can be about a gaming console or the companies that make it all happen. As long as we can make it relevant to this week, we're going to roll with it. While doing so... We hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world in its legacy today. Today. We're all going to learn about the history of Spider-Man, take a look at the very first video game starring a Marvel character, which is 1982 Spider-Man for the Atari 2600. Surprise, surprise. And we'll wrap up our episode today by talking about some of the Spider-Man titles that have been made since. I'm David Casson, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, who is always caught in a web of intrigue. He's my brother, Rob Casson. Rob, what's so interesting today? Well, Dave, it would have to be just why. Just why is of interest? Just, just, just a simple question, or the letter Y? Yes. Fair enough. Fair enough. That's very intriguing. I, I don't even know why I asked it. It, it just brings up more questions, which is of interest actually. So kudos. Thank you. Yeah. So what you got for a little, uh, little, little brief, uh, history. What's going on this week in gaming history? Well, Dave, we found ourselves in the week of January 7, 2024, and there are certainly some things to look back on in gaming history. In 1932, Valley Manufacturing was founded by Raymond Maloney, starting out as a pinball manufacturer, but later ending up in the video game market as Valley Midway in the 70s and early 80s. Mm-hmm. In 93, the side-scrolling beat-em-up Streets of Rage 2 was released for the Sega Mega Drive in Japan. 19 years ago, in 2005, Mercenaries Playground of Destruction was released for the PlayStation 2. They need to bring that back. Well, Dave, the reason they might not have is that it had stiff competition as it was released against Game of the Year winner Resident Evil 4. Oof. Oof. Yeah, pretty (laughs) tough to go up against that one. And then 19 years later, they make a Resident 4 Evil remake, and it once again, the remake is part of the Game of Year discussion, which I don't necessarily agree with remakes being Game of the Year nominees, but it is what it is. So, yeah, it's just crazy how we're coming full circle. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In 2008, Electronic Arts completed its acquisition of VG Holding Court, which added Bioware and Pandemic Studios to its EA Games label. Okay. Also in 2008, Take-Two Interactive finished its acquisition of Illusion Softworks, the studio behind the Hidden and Dangerous series, and the first in the Mafia series. That studio is renamed to 2K Jack. And yet again in 2008, Valve acquired Turtle Rock Studios, who had previously helped work on the Xbox version of Counter-Strike and was the primary developer on Counter-Strike Condition Zero. They would later create the Left 4 Dead series. And not a bad acquisition, I would assume. Actually, no. so they worked on Counter-Strike and Counter-Strike Zero, and then Valve pretty much said, like, hey, you want to make something of your own? And they said, sure. And that's where we got Left 4 Dead. A great series it is. It is. It's a good, good game. In 2016, That Dragon Cancer was released worldwide on Steam. It's an autobiographical game based on a family's experience of raising and losing their son to cancer. A must-play for people who like games that make you feel. Yeah, that's a that's a brutal one. But, I, you know, as someone who believes in video games as art, I'd highly recommend it. Well, if you're looking for something a little trippy... It's been three years since the release of Psycho Cat, The Door, on Steam. Its official description reads, Playing Psycho Cat is like learning how to rub your belly while patting your head. It might take a few tries to succeed, but once you master it, it feels like you've unlocked a superpower. And speaking of superpowers, Dave, why don't you go ahead and tell all of us about Spider-Man? All right, well, buckle up, webheads, because we're about to swing through an epic video game journey of your friendly neighborhood Spider-Man. It's a wild ride of ups, downs, and plenty of sticky situations. Sticky in the Uh fun kind of way. (laughs) Ew. (laughs) It's 1962, and Marvel Comics editor and head writer Stan Lee was looking for a new superhero idea. At the time, there was a huge demand for comic books with teenagers, and he was looking to create a character with whom they could identify. It was his kind of thing, after all. Prior to this, he had made his mark as one of the creators of the Fantastic Four. Now, The Fantastic Four came about when his boss, Martin Goodman, went golfing with one of the executives at DC Comics, And Goodman proceeded to sit there and listen to them brag about their new superhero team, the Justice League of America. As a result, Goodman went to his own comics editor, Stan Lee, and asked him to create their own comic book series about a team of superheroes. Now, Stan Lee had been serving as the editor-in-chief of Marvel Comics and its predecessors, which were Timely Comics and Atlas Comics for decades, And he had kind of felt that comic books had become stale at that point. So he decided that for once he would create the characters, you know, the kind of characters rather that he could personally relate to. As he put it, they would be flesh and blood. They would have their faults and follies. They'd be fallible and feisty. And most important of all, inside their colorful costumed bodies or booties, They'd still have feet of clay. Faults and foibles. Doesn't say faults and foils. It says faults and foibles. Missed that quote. What the heck is a foible, Rob? 
I don't have any idea on that, Dave. (laughs) So, yeah. So, you know, he wanted superheroes that were real people and not just superheroes. So this was his opportunity to apply that philosophy, which served him well with the Fantastic Four to the teenager superhero genre. In his autobiography, Stanley cited a non-superhuman pulp magazine crime fighter called The Spider, no surprise, as his inspiration. Between 1933 and 1943, popular publication released 118 issues of The Spider. The Spider stories often involved a bizarre menace to the country and a criminal conspiracy. They were often extremely violent with the villains engaging in the wanton slaughter of thousands as sometimes as part of their sometimes nationwide crime sprees. So pretty brutal, the spider fighting crime. Stanley has also been quoted in various interviews as seeing that he was also inspired by seeing a spider climb up the wall. But he noted in his autobiography that he has told that story so many times that he's not sure anymore if it's even the case. Nice. But the influence that the pop character, the spider, you know, had on Spider-Man is pretty obvious. The spider was often wanted by both the law and the criminal underworld, something that is seen in pretty much all the early Spider-Man stories. And through the years of struggle, the spider had developed a sixth sense of sorts, which warned him of danger. Is your spidey sense tingling with that one? A little bit, Dave. So at the time, the majority of teenage superheroes were given names ending with boy, but Stanley chose Spider-Man because he wanted the character to have room to age as the series progressed. And he also felt that the by by calling it a boy, that the superhero was going to be perceived as being inferior to all the other superheroes. So he chose to name a teenager Spider-Man, which was not common for teenage superheroes at the time. Another interesting little tidbit tucked into the creation of Spider-Man before I move on is the infamous hyphen in his name. That was inserted there to create some separation between Spider-Man and Superman. The more you know. Their names are very close to one another. Both have red and blue costumes with names that start with an S and end with a man. So he had to separate them. You know what I mean? Yeah. So Stanley takes this concept to the boss and... He gets approval for the name Spider-Man and the ordinary teenager concept, basically. And he looks for an artist to collaborate with. He partners with an artist named Steve Ditko, and they work through the design of Spider-Man. They get the boss's approval to do a Spider-Man tryout in the 15th issue of Amazing Fantasy but only because it has already been decided that Amazing Fantasy was going to be canceled after that particular issue. So the new the comic book publisher had nothing to lose. With nothing to lose, they create a story. It gets published in Amazing Fantasy, and Stan Lee and Steve Ditko move on with their lives. A few months later, the boss, Martin Goodman, is reviewing sales figures for recent issues of Marvel Comics. And 
the team is shocked to find out that Amazing Fantasy number 15 was one of their highest selling comics as of late. So they did a little research, found out that the public was infatuated with Spider-Man. So Goodman goes back to Stanley and Steve Dicko and asks them to create a solo series for Spider-Man, which began with the amazing Spider-Man number one in March of 1963. 60, almost 61 years ago, huh? Almost. This series, The Amazing Spider-Man, would eventually become Marvel's top-selling series. Now, Spider-Man is one of the most commercially successful characters, so it's definitely important historically for pop culture. But in the 1970s, as a little added trivia bonus for today, I thought you should know that it made a significant contribution to the comic book industry because I found this interesting and I wanted to share it. Prior to the 1970s, the Comics Code forbade the depiction of the use of illegal drugs in any way, shape, or form. Do you know what the Comics Code is, Rob? I'm going to assume it's a code for comics. Yeah, it's basically a code of ethics, you know, language and behaviors and so on and so forth, that all the comic book publishers, you know, they they all abided by. And it was an authority, the Comics Code authority. It had a little stamp. If you got a, if the issue got approved by the comic code authority, it got a little stamp of authority. And that little stamp basically told, you know, parents and other readers like, hey, this is about, you know, this is cool. This is, you know, morally, ethically, you can you can have your child read this or so on and so forth. Movies had one in the beginning of all things. We had a, a movie, a cinema um, Hollywood had had a code system. It was pretty common for media at the time. So. Prior to 1970s, the Comics Code, it forbade the depiction of the use of legal drugs in any way, shape, or form. Can't, can't, can't portray drug use at all. Illegal drug use, rather. In 1970, the Nixon administration asked Stan Lee to publish an anti-drug message in one of their top-selling titles. Uh, wasn't necessarily a Spider-Man, they just said, hey... You know, comic books are popular. We want you to, you know, we want you to send out an anti-drug message because we're, you know, we're we're doing the anti-drug thing. So Marvel chooses Spider-Man and they come up with a story in which Harry Osborn, Spider-Man's, you know, Peter Parker's best friend, uh, becomes addicted to pills. And when Spider-Man fights Harry's father, who is the Green Goblin, he defeats him by revealing Harry's drug addiction, catching him off guard, and so on and so forth. It was a very clean anti-drug message, but it still wasn't allowed under the Comics Code. So the Comic Code Authority refused to issue that story, that comic book, a seal of approval. Marvel ended up publishing three issues of Spider-Man around the storyline, Without the Comic Code's authority, approval, or seal, these issues sold so well that it showed the the showed basically everyone that the Comic Code authority censorship had no clout whatsoever. People didn't care about the seal approval. So in response to that, the Comics Code was revised. 
So neat little story about Spider-Man and positive messages, right? Positive anti-drug messages. Well, damn. I thought that was a cool story. It's a cool story. It It just goes to show that uh, drugs, man, don't matter. It's a completely different topic 50 years later. So So leading out of the 70s and 80s, Spider-Man remains an incredibly popular figure for Marvel. And of course, whenever you have a popular character, you're always looking for merchandising opportunities. This is also, as we've talked about, a time in which the video game industry is basically having an identity crisis. We don't quite know yet where exactly the video game industry falls in the realm of electronics, basically. In the beginning, you know, it was Magnavox who brought video games into people's homes with the Odyssey, and that was basically by proxy of their involvement with televisions. And so other companies like Philips, for example, entered the video game industry as a natural extension of their television business. Many of the other companies that brought video games into our homes in the beginning were toy companies because video games were seen as an extension of electronic toys by some. And like I said, it wasn't yet its own industry. It was televisions to some, it was toys to other. We didn't quite know where it fits. There were straight up toy companies producing consoles in the first and second generations. Uh, Coleco, Bandai, Mattel made the Intellivision. Technically, Nintendo was a toy company at one point. We did a whole episode on it. They went from playing cards to electronic toys to electrical mechanical games. And then finally, with the TV TV game or TV Home 1 or whatever it was, we did an episode on it. They broke into home consoles, you know, and then, of course, they made the Nintendo and saved the industry and the rest is history. But Toy Company. Nintendo was a toy company. Mattel and Television, toy company. The ColecoVision, toy company. You know, all these toy companies were making video games because it was seen as an electronic toy at the time, you know, on on one part of the industry. One of the other companies that was progressing similarly was Parker Brothers. Now, Parker Brothers had... A little brief history, been originally founded as the George S. Parker Company in Salem, Massachusetts during 1883. A few years later, when when George's brother Charles joined the business, they changed their name to the Parker Brothers that we all know and love today. And for years, the company made board games. You might know a few games that they've made. They're relatively unknown games, Rob. You know, like Risk and Clue and Monopoly, just games that nobody's heard of. I haven't heard of those, Dave. No, not a single one. No, that's you should probably change that. You should broaden your horizons and maybe play a game every once in a while. Nah. Throughout the 70s and into the 80s, as electronic toys became more commonplace, Parker Brothers invested into this market. They began producing electronic versions of all their popular board games. In 1979, They decided to venture directly into the electronic toy market. They made an electronic action figure called Rom the Space Knight. Rom as an R-O-M, Rom. Now, Rom was originally called COBOL after the programming language. 
Parker Brothers Executives changed its name to ROM after they purchased it from its creators. Uh, ROM's creators were a group of men named Scott Dankman, Richard C. Levy, and Brian L. McCoy. So they purchased Cobol the Knight, the Space Knight. They changed its name to Rob. It wasn't a great toy, but it was something new. You know, toys were something like electronic toys. These were something that were new for Parker Brothers. So they tried to minimize the risk of going into electronic toys by producing it as cheap as possible. Uh, But you still had to make it exciting, right? I mean, you can make a cheap toy, but you got to find some way to keep the kids interested and want to buy it. You know what I mean? True that. So in order to drum up interest in Rom the Space Knight, Parker Brothers ended up licensing the character of Rom to none other than Marvel Comics, who then created a comic book called Rom the Space Knight. The comic basically laid down the premise that Rom was a cyborg, and it established the character as existing within the Marvel Universe. Uh, Rom frequently had encounters with well-known villains from the Marvel Universe, and he fought alongside well-known superheroes. Funny enough, the comic book actually outlasted the toy by a long shot. I mean, the toy was said to be popular for a couple years, but the comic book ended up running about 75 issues from December of 1979 until February of 1986. Now, before someone catches me, because there's always going to be that one guy who does the, (laughs) you're wrong. Rom was licensed by IDW Publishing in 2016 and brought into the Hasbro universe, fighting alongside the Transformers. So there is a modern Ron the Space Knight who fights not as a Transformer, but alongside the Transformers. But the original run of the comic book was from 79 to 86. Coincidentally, at some point, pure coincidence, maybe not, I don't know. Uh, but I thought that this was a fun little tie in. In 1984, towards the end of the run of the comic book, uh, Steve Ditko, the co creator of Spider Man, actually becomes the regular artist. He does all the all the artwork for Rom for the last couple of years of, or year and a half rather of its run. Come kind of come full circle on that one. So with the Rom figurine, Parker Brother breaks into the toy market. And they continue making electronic toys. So when the Atari at the end of the 70s pretty much breaks the home video game market open, all of these toy companies, you know, like the Mattel and the Calicos and the Bandai's, they start eyeing the potential to enter it and make more money. And Parker Brothers was no exception to this rule. So Parker Brothers hires a small team of programmers and they decide that they're going to make licensed games for the Atari 2600. One of the programmers that's hired was a lady named Laura Nikolic. Now, Nikolic had her MBA in engineering technology. She was particularly interested in computer programming And after earning her degree, she had found a job at a nuclear power plant programming monitoring systems. So, uh, you know, for whatever reason, when I saw that, I pictured her as Homer Simpson. So (laughs) nice. 
When I think of someone sitting in a nuclear plant console, I mean, how, how many other references do we have of that, you know? No, I mean, you got a good point, Dave. He will forever be a, a nuclear power monitoring person. I, it's either that or Chernobyl. Those are our two reference points for nuclear nuclear power plants. So you have to remember he's the safety inspector of sector, I think, 7G. OK, I don't remember. but I got the nuclear power plant part right. It wasn't a forever job for Nora, Laura, Nora, Nora Nikolich. It was not a forever job for Laura Nikolich, though. And at one point, she found herself talking to Parker Brothers at an employment fair. They really wanted me to come work for them, she recalled in a 2018 Polygon interview. I had the skills, but as a woman, I also helped them hit diversity hiring quotas. So they worked hard to persuade me. And when I worked where when I worked there, they treated me so, so well. So Parker Brothers had decided to make video games for home consoles, both ports of existing game and licensed titles. Once they got everything rolling, they, for instance, brought Frogger, which we did an episode on. We talked about the fact that Frogger has been ported over to everything. One of those ports was for the Atari 2600, and that was done by this team at Parker Brothers. Parker Brothers also brought Qbert to the Atari 2600 as a port. As for licensed titles, other programmers in the department were given the task of bringing Star Wars to the Atari, because we haven't gotten to an episode on it yet, but we will. But the very first Star Wars licensed game ever was for the Atari, and it was made by Parker Brothers by some of Laura Nikolich's colleagues. But Laura, Laura was gifted Spider-Man. I had full creative control, she mentioned in the same Polygon interview, and decided to go with a vertically scrolling game, she added. A vertical game makes sense because Spider-Man swings across tall buildings. Damn, that's smart. <laughs> well, vertical scrolling was rare. I mean, it, it it was it was rare at the time. I mean, we're not too many years into this, you know. That no, a hundred percent. So, just to give some context, it's really important to understand back then. Companies like Marvel, they weren't controlling their intellectual properties like they do with modern games. You know, nowadays, since we're on the topic of Spider Man. And the Spider-Man games for the PlayStation made by Insomnia Games have been like all game of the year contenders since they've been making them. A game like that, Marvel has a really tight grip on the representation of their intellectual property. They control a lot of the aspects of those games to make sure that Spider-Man is a proper representation of, 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 their, of their property, right? But back when, that wasn't the case. Back when, companies like Marvel were just happy to take the licensing fee. They would take the money, they'd sit back, and they would let someone else do all the work. <laughs> That's the way it worked back then. So, Nikolic would go on to work on an unreleased Care Bears game afterwards before hanging it up to start a family. But she looks back at her time at Parker Brothers as some of the best in her entire career. 
as an added bonus, making video games was passed down to her children. At the time of that Polygon interview, she had one child that was a technical advisor for Dice and another that was one of the design leads for Bungie. So, wow. Um, her game, Spider Man, which was released in 1982 for the Atari 2600. It's not only the first game featuring Spider-Man, it's the first licensed Marvel video game, period. In this game, you control Spider-Man. He is attempting to scale a building and defuse bombs that are planted by the Green Goblin. Spider-Man is able to use his web lines to move up the building. You can either you can move diagonally or you can move straight up. And hanging out some of the windows, popping in and out of these windows are these criminals and basically they're, they've got scissors and they're trying to cut the web and if they cut your web you go plummeting to the ground now i mean you have like life you know the way the game works is you have a limited number of like web web stuff that's your life and like as when they cut it you lose some that's your life basically so if you run out of web juice and they cut your thing you go falling to the ground once you get to the top you face off against the green goblin um, if you manage to defeat him, you all scurry off to another building that's taller, faster, different. Uh, you rinse and repeat until you're finished playing. There is no end to this game whatsoever. It's a game that just has a really simple but clever loop. It was reviewed. It was called Clever. It was called Engrossing. I mean, it was a it was a good game for the time. There, There's, I mean, it was a good game for the time. You know, we look back at some of the games at that period and we go, what the heck were people thinking? This one wasn't mind blowing, but it's not one of those either. You know what I mean? So it was clever and engrossing. I find it hard to believe that there's not a uh, an end, Dave. I bet there's someone out there who can prove that wrong. Game has to crash or something. Are you talking about Tetris? You're talking about Tetris, aren't you? there's a lot of games that do that Dave where it just it couldn't handle the memory overload and just crashes after a certain point tell me you read that story this week oh about the teenager who beat who finally beat Tetris for the first time ever finally hit the kill screen in Tetris that no one's been able to hit for for god I mean however many years Tetris has been around you know what to be fair I don't think anyone's ever tried to break Spider-Man but you're probably right there's probably a, a way to break it somewhere but it hasn't really happened what you just have is a, like I said, a clever and engrossing game. And speaking of clever and engrossing, have you, dear listener, ever considered making your own podcast? Do you have something clever and engrossing that you'd like to share with the world, but you really don't know how? Our friends at Zencaster have created an all-in-one suite of podcasting tool tools that makes it easier than ever to create your own podcast. With Zencaster, it's super easy to record a podcast. Everyone logs in using their web browser, and you just start recording a high-quality podcast right away. It allows you to record up to 4K videos with your guests, and with Zencaster's multi-layered backups, you always have the highest quality recordings, even if the connection is unstable. And with Zencaster, you never have to worry about what you sound like. Zencaster's post-production process makes you sound buttery smooth. It automatically removes all those ums and ahs, gets rid of all those awkward pauses and conversation. You can set the podcast loudness. You can reduce background noise. All of this is done. It's a bunch of features. You click on a menu and then you hit a single click of the button. You tell it to go and do its thing and away it goes. 
And even if the thought of podcasting overwhelms you because you think you need tons of different tools and services, you can relax. Those days are over. With Zencaster's all-in-one podcasting platform, you can create your podcast all in one place and distribute it to major destinations. So if you'd like to start your own podcast, or maybe you want to take your podcast to the next level, we've got a deal for you. Go to Zencaster.com forward slash pricing. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R dot com forward slash pricing. And use our offer code. It's all one word, memory card lane. And you can get 30% off the first month of any Zencaster paid monthly plan. Sign up for Zencaster today and you can experience the same ease in producing your own high-quality podcast as we do each week. Go out and share your ideas with the world. So, Nicolich's Spider-Man game, which in itself was a great idea, may have been this first Spider-Man game, but as we know now, thankfully, it wasn't the last by any stretch of the imagination. Now, for the sake of time... I'm not going to talk about every single game that's out there, but I do want to highlight some of what I think are the more interesting ones that I found while doing research for this episode. We've already talked about one of them. It was Quest Probe featuring Spider-Man. We discussed this in episode 155, which is about Adventure International. A little quick backstory, Adventure International was a video game company. They made some of the very first uh, adventure games that were ever published for microcomputers. Of course, we know that the adventure genre goes back further than that, you know, to Zork, and which we're doing in a few weeks, and or maybe next week, and uh, Colossal Cave Adventure. But, you know, Adventure International here made the, the earliest ones once microcomputers became a thing that was called the Adventureland series a whole a whole series of great adventure games but aside from that they made this trilogy of graphic adventure games uh which are called the quest probe series and the second game in that series features spider-man himself it was released in 1984 I'm not going to go into it in any more detail because, like I said, we did a whole bit on it in that episode. So if you're interested, go to our archives, check it out. It was episode 155 on Adventure International. In 1989, a company called Paragon Software, they released a side-scrolling game for various home computer platforms. It was called The Amazing Spider-Man and Captain America in Doctor Doom's Revenge. That game features a whole assortment of Marvel Comics supervillains through the course of the game, many of whom are considered minor characters in the comic books. Uh, Lobo is there, Great Gargoyle, Machete, Boomerang, Oddball, Electro, Hobgoblin, Rhino, Batrock the Leaper, Zeran. Zeran? I don't know, Dave. That's not one I'm familiar with. I think that one might have been made for the game. There was one in there that was made for the game, and that might be it. Anyways, and then Dr. Doom himself is is part of it. It's funny, they may have been minor characters in comic books, but like like Electro, Hobgoblin, Rhino, like people really know those nowadays. You know what I mean? Dr. Doom, Very for true. sure. <laughs> that same year in 1989, there's also a video game called Revenge of Shinobi, 
for the Sega Genesis that has Spider-Man in it. At least some versions of the game have Spider-Man in it. And the reason is fantastic and worth talking about. So the game's director, Noriyoshi Oba, made these rough sketches of characters for the game. They were based on what he had in mind at the time. And he made them with the expectation that the character designer would take the like his little sketches and modify them and then add their own creative touches, you know, redesign them and kind of make them fit this game. However, the character design designers did not do that, resulting in some enemy characters in that game that are basically like clones of Sylvester Stallone. There are Batman clones in the game. There are Spider-Man clones in the game. There's uh, Terminator clones and there are Godzilla lookalikes in the game. There are actually multiple versions of the game. They re-released it to not break copyright. They basically swapped the color palette. So like Spider-Man in the next version had a pink. It was just a pink Spider-Man looking dude. At some point, however, Sega was actually able to get the get a copyright for Spider-Man because they were the publishing studio for another game in which Spider-Man was in. And through that, they got licensing rights to Spider-Man. So they were able to re-release Revenge of Shinobi with Spider-Man in it, actually. So there are versions that don't have Spider-Man and there are versions that do have Spider-Man. And also Batman, genuinely, if you go back and you look at videos of Ranger Shinobi, you're like, how the heck did anyone get away with that? And the answer is because no one really looked at copyright like they do now. But it's kind of funny because you can clearly see the resemblance in in this fantastic game. So I'm still trying to figure out what that has to do with ninjas. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. It has nothing to do with ninjas. He just was not an artist and he sketched. He just sketched things that he knew. And he was like, hey, change this. You know, this is a spider spider guy in a spider suit ish character. Make this not look like Spider-Man, but reuse this because this is my idea. Or like Batman was a guy with bat wings, like an enemy. I mean, because like Revenge of the Shinobi is kind of like got some supernatural elements to it. So it could be a giant bat type thing, like type creature, right? So he's like, I got Batman stuck in my head, but make this a giant bat creature. And the guys go, OK, Batman in the game. Got it. <laughs> You know, yeah, but uh, Shinobi is ninja. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. So it's just, yeah, just because they were covertly not the same thing. Like, it's just, I don't know. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, the like I said, they were just fighting supernatural characters. You know, we did an episode early on on Ninja Gaiden, and Ninja Gaiden fights weird characters too. Yeah, but ninja, they're ninjas. No, I mean the the in Ninja Gaiden you're fighting bats and these weird like yeah, but what are you as the character? In Ninja Gaiden, you're yeah. you're a ninja. In Shinobi okay. in Sh- no, in Shinobi you're also a ninja. You're fighting against these characters. Oh, as a Shinobi. Okay. Yes, yes, yes. yes. That's the part where I didn't get it. You just kept naming off the characters, and I was like, what does that have to do with ninjas? Oh, so they are... because you are the one. Okay. Yeah, you're the ninja, and these are enemy characters you're fighting against, which were supposed to be creatures, and they just ended up being clones of... uh, It's funny. I mean, it literally looks like Batman is standing there. (laughs) So, it's pretty great. 
Paragon also made a platform game a year later, uh, literally called The Amazing Spider-Man. In The Amazing Spider-Man, Mysterio kidnaps Mary Jane um, to save her. Spider-Man has to navigate through various environments that have puzzles in them. They're divided into separate acts. They all represent Mysterio's obsession with film, which is why I find this one interesting. All of the rooms in the game, and it's worth checking out, are parodies of film genres. So it kind of turns Mysterio into like a Riddler type uh, a type deal, which is kind of cool. Paragon also made three Amazing Spider-Man games for the Game Boy, but they're completely unrelated to the Amazing Spider-Man. So there's a whole bunch of those. In 1991... There is a Spider-Man arcade cabinet that is a side-scrolling beat-em-up, which is kind of like our Ninja Turtles arcade game or the Simpsons one that you and I played a while back. Remember the very first Simpsons game? Yep. I made you play through the Simpsons arcade, which was a lot of fun for, I don't know, would it take us an hour? Something like that. I, that, I love those games. I love those games. I mean, that whole era of... Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle arcades that side scroll and beat them up. You know, that was that was Turtles was my gateway into that. Yours, too. And all the other licensed property they made around it is a lot of fun. I can't say I've ever played the Spider-Man one. I have to, like, in hindsight, find it and see if we can't play through that one. There was a Super Nintendo title released in 1994 called Spider-Man and Venom. Maximum Carnage. I very much remember this game because I don't know if we have it or if we rented it, but the cartridge is red. They made an initial run of it where the Super Nintendo cartridge is not cast in that standard Super Nintendo gray that we're used to. The color of the cartridge is Spider-Man, like a, a, a dark crimson red. It's really sharp looking. This game is another side scroll and beat em up where you play as both Spider-Man at some points and Venom and others. It's also a significant game in the history of Spider-Man video games because it's one of the first video games in the ser in out of all of these that was directly based on a comic book story. So pretty much every game we've talked about until this point, and the ones we didn't too, all these games just used the characters, and they threw them into just a generic action-adventure plot. In a lot of ways, that works, because Spider-Man is a generic action-adventure plot. No offense to Spider-Man people, but, I mean, comic books and action kind of go hand-in-hand, hand, you know? But they were just generic plots. There wasn't any tie-in to a comic or something else Spider-Man did or anything like that until Maximum Carnage. Maximum Carnage is a comic book in itself, and the video game pulls its story directly from the Maximum Carnage storyline. Maximum, It was a 14-part comic book crossover that had Spider-Man, Venom, and a slew of other superheroes. They were facing off against Carnage, which is the bad Venom, and other supervillains. Not only did the plot of the game follow the plot of the comic book, 
but many of the cutscenes in the game are taken right from the pages of the comic book, which I imagine, like in hindsight now, that that's probably really freaking cool if you were a comic book fan at the time, you know? I remember being a fan, uh, I was a fan of Scott Pilgrim before the movie came out. And I had that same feeling like when the movie came out and there were frames from the graphic book that were right on the, the movie screen. I remember like a sense of awe, like that's really freaking cool. So I imagine Spider-Man fans probably had a similar feeling for Maximum Carnage here in the 90s. Yeah, probably. Uh, Maximum Carnage was also the first Spider-Man video game to receive a teen rating. Part of that, they were all E for everyone. Maybe there was a, a PG-13 one. Or, I don't know. Is there a PG-13 for video games? I don't think there is. No idea, Dave. There's E and E-10 and then T for teen and M for mature, I think. Anyway, moving on. So around the year 2000, Activision acquires the Spider-Man license and they work with Neversoft to develop a Spider-Man title that year. It's just called Spider-Man. It's a straightforward storyline. Spider-Man goes against his enemies per normal, except in this one, the last boss is also related to Carnage. That's why it popped up into my head. Uh, Carnage is an alien symbiote, the same thing that Venom is, but the bad version. That's why I called him a bad, bad Venom. And so at the end of this game, that symbiote, that carnage symbiote possesses Doc Ock. And so he gets turned into a character that the game names Monster Oct, um, which is the only like out of the ordinary thing about the characters, bosses, so on and so forth. And that game is Monster Oct. What's interesting about this two, year 2000 Spider-Man, though, is that Neversoft had literally just developed Tony Hawk Pro Skater a year before. And this engine that they used to make Spider-Man is the same engine that they used to make Tony Hawk. And of course, we did a whole episode on Tony Hawk Pro Skater. Go check it out because you'll find out one of my favorite facts now that I talked about in our year of the end review was that the original prototype of Tony Hawk had Bruce Willis on a skateboard because the Tony Hawk engine was originally made for a game called Apocalypse that starred Bruce Willis. So Bruce Willis on a skateboard became Spider-Man. And I just think that's a cool progression that they made that one engine for Apocalypse and they kept using it for Tony Hawk and then he continued well, to use it for Spider-Man. Do you ever see the face of Spider-Man, Dave? No, so maybe maybe it's Bruce Willis. It's a good point. There you go. That is a very, very good point. This relationship, in case you didn't know, is why Spider-Man is one of the hidden characters in Tony Hawk Pro Skater 2. I don't know. Hmm, if didn't I, actually know that. So. While we're on the topic of the Tony Hawk series, one of the other development studios that's involved with the series is Vicarious Visions. Like I said, you can learn all about Neversoft and Vicarious Visions in our episode on Tony Hawk. That was episode 161. But for our purposes today, you should know that Vicarious Visions worked on a number of Spider-Man games, including 
some of those Game Boy total titles. There were some Game Boy Color titles and Spider-Man 3, which was tied into the movie Spider-Man 3. And since we're talking about that movie trilogy, you should also know that the other games in the movie trilogy were in part worked on by Treyarch, which would go on to create a large number of games in the Call of Duty series. And of course, these are all the games in the series before Activision lost the license. They lost it just before releasing The Amazing Spider-Man 2 in 2014. That license, as we now know, was acquired by Insomniac Games, who has now brought us three excellent games in the Spider-Man series. They've all, at the very least, been nominated for Game of the Year. I don't believe any of them, Spider-Man, Miles Morales, or Spider-Man 2, none of them have taken home the Game of the Year title, but they have all been nominated for it, um, which is great. Because when so many games are released every year, to me, it's an accomplishment just to be a part of the Game of the Year conversation. So, yeah. Have you played any Spider-Man games? Like, any new ones, old ones, any of them anywhere? I have played one. I don't remember. I think it was the second one, because I'm pretty sure I remember fighting Doc Ock. Okay. So assuming it's like the movies and that was Spider-Man yeah. 2 for the PS2. Yeah, they did. They made that those movies as a trilogy the same way that so. Gotcha. So that's the one that I remember playing because I remember that I couldn't beat Doc Ock. And the only reason I managed to beat the game is because it glitched out and I got shifted through the warehouse and it counted as a win. <laughs> and I was like, sweet, I did it. <laughs> that's funny when stuff like that happens. Oh, I love it. It was fantastic. That is very but funny. I do want to play more. Just, you know, a lot of them were on PlayStation and, you know, no PlayStations. No PlayStations. The The current ones are really good. I really enjoy. Um, I haven't played Spider-Man 2, but I've played Spider-Man and, and Spider-Man Miles Morales, and they're they're fantastic games. I have no gripes about the modern ones. It's real nice to see technology come together and to think that we started out with Spider-Man swinging across buildings on the Atari 2600, just square representations of buildings and little criminal looking guys trying to cut your, your rope. It's, it doesn't even look like a web, right? It's a rope. Let's be honest. It's a line, not even a rope. It's a black line that they cut. We went from that to like a living, breathing version of New York that you're swinging through or, you know, that fictionalized version of it that you're swinging through. And I know I say it all the time, but sometimes when I stop and think about things like that, my I just I'm in awe of how far we've come as an industry and excited for what's next. That's the other part to it, you know, so excited for what's next i didn't play a lot of the spider-man games i i get lumped together with comic book nerds very often i am not a comic book nerd i don't nerd out about comic book characters the same way that they do i like video games obviously video games are my thing i'm here doing video game history so that should come as no surprise so 
Yeah, no surprise at all. Well, for sake of time, I think that's a good place to call it on the history of Spider-Man, Spider-Man games, Spider-Man, so forth. Spider-Man is one of the most commercially successful characters period nowadays multimedia wise movies and games and the into the spider-verse cartoons have been some of the highest rated and best received animated stuff of the past you know five years or however long they've been making them so in terms of recognizable characters in pop culture there are a few that i i would venture are bigger than spider-man i think that's a fair statement at this point so I don't really think that we need to do uh, where Spider-Man is history <laughs> or Stan Lee or any of it. You know, Parker Brothers is not a video game company anymore. So I guess there's that. Parker Brothers isn't even a company anymore. I think that they were bought up by Hasbro because Hasbro owns Monopoly now. So if I'm not mistaken, at some point they were purchased by Hasbro and now they're a Hasbro property. So Stan Lee passed away. Was it last year or the year before? I forget what year. Yeah, Stan Lee passed away within the past couple years. I think it was two. Yeah, I feel like two as well. Parker Brothers is now Hasbro, and Spider-Man is one of the biggest characters in the world. I think that's a good summary for Legacy, huh? True that, Dave. So there were some interesting things in there. You know, we we talked about a few other games. We talked about... We talked about the Tony Hawk episode, which is 161. We talked about Adventure International 155. Don't hold me to that. I know I said it 150 something. There are all these interesting little touchbacks to other topics, you know, other episodes that we've done. And of course, if you want to go back and check out any of those old episodes, you can, of course, go to wherever you get your podcasts. You know, the whole archives are on there. But we also have archives on our website, which is www.memorycardlane.com. Rob, what else can people find on our website? Well, Dave, people can find a calendar of our future episodes. You can find links to our Discord where you can hang out with Dave and I and talk about whatever it is you might want to chat about, as well as links to our Patreon where you can get unedited and ad-free versions of our episodes. And you can also find links to our social media. I can be found on several platforms as Rob underscore O underscore Raptor and Dave. I can be found on various platforms as David is wrong. Each week, we tell you one story relevant to the Crow Week in Gaming history. Sometimes it's about games. Sometimes it's about the people who create the games. Sometimes it's about consoles. Sometimes it's about the technologies that allow us to make the consoles. Just I find a topic, if I can make it relevant to this week, I'll roll with it. In doing so, we hope to teach you something new about the topic, what it took from the world as its inspiration, or what it gave back to the world as its legacy. The most fantastical, yes, that's a word, part of doing this podcast week in and week out is learning new things, frankly. Every week when we sit down, when I sit down to do research, I always, always, always learn something new about the topic. And then I take those fun things 
like the Comic Code Authority, for instance, which was not part of video games, but so I'm going to spit it out. And I get to teach you things that you may not have known about the topics, you know, about Spider-Man and Spider-Man video games. It's this great cycle where, you know, because we do the preparation to teach you, we learn things. So leeching, le- leeching, that's what it's called, right? Leeching. So teaching, learning, it's a fantastic cycle that I love. In recognition of that cycle, every week we like to go round table and talk about our takeaways. So Rob, what did you learn today? Well, Dave, obviously I learned about the comic code, but I think my favorite takeaway has to be how Spider-Man came to be as far as being part of the spider or being influenced by the spider. Okay. I never really knew that. And I also think it's kind of cool that Stanley chose man instead of boy because he wanted to age up. I never really thought about that because, yeah, I mean, he's a teenager and he's Spider-Man. But like, I just thought, you know, it sounds more heroic, more whatever. But to to think that it was actually with the intention of having him age as it went along is kind of cool. For sure. So that's it for me. How about yourself? This one was a fascinating one. I also never put much thought into the origins of Spider-Man. Again, not comic books. That's probably because we're not comic people. I did enjoy the history of Parker Brothers. I got to dive into that a little bit. I, you know, learning about their first electronic toy, the ROM, the ROM, the Space Knight, and that they did a comic book tie-in was pretty cool. And just watching that evolve into them getting more into electronics and video games. It's just, it's cool. It's cool to see how these companies evolved and how they try to jump on fads, you know, because it was a fad. Electronic toys were a fad. Video games were a fad. You know, they try to get in these markets because they see money, money, money. It's just kind of fun sometimes to watch the evolution and see what happens with it. So that was a lot of fun for me this time around. All right. That'll do it, Rob. Before I take us into next week, is there anything you'd like to add to today's episode? As always, Dave, I do want to take one quick moment to say thank you so much to all of our listeners. It means the world to us, and we hope you enjoy learning, even when it's not always directly about video games, but sometimes even about superheroes. So thank you. Yes, thank you very much. We appreciate everyone that takes the time to listen to me rant or ramble depending on your perception of the situation for an hour which we're at the hour mark so let's take it in next week all right web slingers and true believers we've swung through the towering landscapes of new york to explore the intricate web of spider-man's gaming legacy but next week we'll be trading in our spidey suits for swords sorcery and some seriously challenging puzzles as we venture into the fantastical realms of zork and weave our way through the labyrinthian corridors of its development studio Infocom. So hang up those web shooters and get ready to dust off your keyboard for adventure into the unknown. Mark the date on the calendar and join us again next week because you don't want to get you don't want to miss our spellbinding episode on the Great Underground Empire as we take yet another trip down memory card lane. Do the thing. Do it up. Do it up. Do it up. Do it up. Do it up.